Mr. McConaughey? Well, yes, it is. Oh my God, I I, I, I love you in Dazed and Confused. Well, I, I know, I just came on my Lincoln Rover and I realized the entire time there was a burger on the side of my finger. And, uh, and I realized, who's driving this Lincoln Rover? That's great. Um, I feel like I should ask Mr. McConaughey, while I'm very honored that you're here, um, what happened to to my, my normal host, Mr. Shoefrider? Oh, well, he's right now out there catching the dandelions with the uh, with the ladybugs. That great. That's a brilliant non-answer. Um, all right. Well, uh, I'll. Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I'm Griffin. I do things around here. And I'm Matt, and I do impressions sometimes. Oh my God! You got back from picking the dandelions or whatever the fuck. I, I was doing something weird. Yeah, clearly. What happened to Mr. McConaughey? Oh, I don't know. He's practicing uh, his voice for Sing Two. Yeah, he's he's still. Did you see the stupid commercial with him in it? Yeah, it was weird. He, he, yeah, he's a, he's a flat man, and then he gets stuck in a vending machine. Yeah, that was a creepy. But you know what's not creepy? This podcast. And you know who we have on today, Griffin? Who? We have Carissa Morel Myers. She's an actor. She's a director. She's a playwright. She was born in Boise, Idaho, and she found her passion for the performing arts when she was three. From there, she went to uh, Boise State University and even started a theater company called The Broken Illusion Project. And get this, Griffin, she got her master's from the University of Hawaii. Wow. So she, she is well-traveled. Yes, she is. And, we, and she also is a casting director at Strong Dog Theater. So we talk a lot about casting, what goes into it, what does she look forward to. Uh, and it's a great discussion about theater itself right now. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Carissa Morrell Myers. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. I uh, love your leg lamp that you have in the background. <laughs> it, it's, I have to have something that goes along with every interview I do in case, you know, it gets bored and the guests need something to look at. Oh, <laughs> there's a giant leg lamp behind him. Why not? It's pretty great. Did you make it yourself? I did not. Oh, I, was, okay. I wish I did, but I was in the room where it happened, not to use another theater <laughs> I'm going to stop talking about that. Anyway, okay. so <laughs> off you going. So I understand um, you're doing this play right now, The Space We Live In at Straw Dog. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about this process and, and how did it come to be? It kind of, I think it goes along with some of the questions I've been asking my guests before of like, what have you learned about yourself? Or how, what, how have you been during this past year, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So the show is called How Do We Navigate Space? And I was brought onto the project after it had already been pitched and decided that we were going to do this um, kind of new devised project based on how people in the city of Chicago are now navigating space during the pandemic um, and what are the kind of the joys and challenges that they have found themselves in 2020. So that was the kind of the original idea that we had decided on. And then, um, so I offered to write the project because somebody needed to take care of the text and 
How that came about was we sent a survey out to a large number of people and the survey had questions like, how do you find yourself taking up space or not taking up space during this pandemic? Um, do you have any pets and how has their life changed with the quarantine period that we've all been under? Um, and just kind of questions about that, like how, and you know, the big question, how are you navigating space? How are you navigating space now versus, you know, before the pandemic, um, versus when the pandemic first started, you know, because I think where we are now, you know, almost a year later is very different from where we were at the beginning, you know, when everyone was like, should we wear masks? How does this virus get transmitted? Everyone's washing their hands like crazy because we didn't know exactly how, you know, the virus passed from person to person. And so from that survey, what I did was I, <laughs> I printed off all of the responses and I posted them all over my house and was doing kind of the, you know, the, the crazy conspiracy theorist thing yeah. where, you know, circling things and right. you know you got the thread from there to there and the post-it notes and highlight so much highlighting um and so from that what i was looking for is i was looking for threads i was looking for you know commonalities between experiences because these are these are people that were from you know all walks of life all demographics different neighborhoods in the city um and the two things that i really found was true for ev almost everyone's experience was this intense sense of waiting of longing of um I, I would say grieving you know because there was a lot of things that you know we've been grieving over during this last year you know loss of jobs um loss of you know family members friends i've personally experienced that myself during this pandemic and um it's been really hard and also this very strong sense of hope that i think kept people going um, I, I kind of liken it to this like little flame that sits inside of us at all times, that no matter how bad things get or how hopeless things seem to become, that little hope still burns, you know? Um, and that was something that I found across so many people's experiences. And while it manifested itself in different ways, um, those were kind of the universal threads that I really wanted to pull into the piece. Cause I think that it's just, it's just, it really taps into our humanity and what makes us human, you know? Um, and so that's what I, I, I decided the piece was going to really lean towards. So while the piece is very much about Chicago, I'm actually really excited because we started filming this week and uh, we're filming in different locations around the city. So if you watch the show and you're from Chicago or if you've just visited or seen pictures, you'll see like landmarks that you are, you know, that are fairly recognizable. But it's also a very universal story because I think we can all relate to these, this idea of striving for hope and, and waiting for better days. Right. And do you think there's like, I think there's even more vulnerability now because of this piece than ever before as someone who's been losing his mind this past year because of everything going on. I feel more vulnerable now than ever just talking mm -hmm. about how I feel being, you know, I moved out of my old house. I'm in this new space right now. I feel even more like I have no one to really connect to right now because I'm kind of on my own and the world's not better. You can even yeah. say it's worse or it's different. So I, I, I applaud these writers. And uh, you, you even said like you were trying to find little themes here and there that kind of go along with each other. Did you find any relatability from your from your side to like whether the people were writing themselves? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, like I said, this idea of like, you know, grief and instability, you know, as we're 
going along. And I mean, this idea also of like isolation, we're all so isolated right now. And I mean, when before the pandemic, I mean, I was, you know, I had just closed a show. I had a week to see some theater before the lockdown happened. Um, but so I, you know, spent my life really outside of my apartment. I wasn't home very often. I came here to sleep and eat sometimes, you know, because I was either in the theater, I was rehearsing something, I was watching a show, I was hanging out with people at a bar after show. You know what I mean? It's like my whole world was wrapped around um, creating theater and partaking in community. And now, since we've all been driven into our homes, my interaction with people is now very limited to I mean, Zoom and, you know, anything that I have on my phone. So I have phone calls or texting. Um, and if it, if you know me, you know that I don't like I don't like talking on the phone with people. And I kind of have uh, developed a, a rather large distaste for Zoom. Um, I find it stressful. I get the Zoom sweats. I don't sweat. Like, I'm not a sweater. Like, even it'll be, like, hot outside. I am not sweating. But for whatever reason, Zoom gives me, like, anxiety. And I'm just, like, what? I'm just, I'm so hot. So I'm, I'm having to take, I take lots of showers after my Zoom calls. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, I, I find myself, like, really, you know, longing for connection with other human beings. And it was a lot easier during the summer, you know, when I could go to a park and I could sit, you know, 10 feet away from my friend and we could like share a lunch or, you know, take a walk down the street with my dog or, but now that that is winter and I have absolutely no interest in going outside. um, My only way of staying connected with people is literally through electronics, which is not my favorite. And that was something that other people had mentioned, you know, in that survey that they felt very disconnected and they were really wanting connection. And that was one of the big things that they said they were looking forward to, you know, once the pandemic is over they'd be able to spend more time with family and friends, like in person. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I, I heard that you don't like Zoom. You, you mentioned something like how you absolutely hate it. And I was trying to figure out why, because like for me, like Zoom has sort of been like a nice little safe thing to do, like like this or a random game night with friends. But, but I think for me, like there's an energy, like I've been doing a couple of shows on Zoom and I, and I and there's just like energy in the rehearsal space like that I can't like make on my own I can't like form something with another with another actor in my bedroom because they're not with me and it's so hard so I can kind of relate to what you're saying with like hmm I'm not a big fan of zoom right now but this is what I got you know I know it's one of those things where like I'm so grateful for it. I think that yeah, I've, you know, if this is one way that we can still stay connected. I can see people's faces. It's actually one of the reasons I don't like talking on the phone is because I could be saying something and I can't see your face. So I have no idea what you're thinking at all. Uh, because, you know, we rely on so much nonverbal communication uh, to be able to understand, you know, how, how is this conversation really going? Um, but what makes me angry about Zoom is that I want to be in the room with people so badly and Zoom is just a constant reminder that I can't or that I shouldn't, right? Because I know some people, are, they're still going out, they're still hanging out with friends and, and stuff like that. But, you know, I've made the conscious decision not to do that just because I don't want to get sick and I want to, you know, pass it along. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like this reminder that like, this is, this is as good as it gets for right now. Right. So that's why I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom line. Screw you, Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Zoom. Anyway, so I, I realized that you were born in Boise, Idaho, correct? I and was. With a fa- and um, you, you're the oldest of three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what were you like as a child? And 
What, what was Boise life like? You know, when I was a kid, it's true today. Um, I was a loud mouthed, talkative kid that just wanted to talk to everyone. My mom was constantly worried that someone was going to snatch me in a grocery store because I would just walk up to people and be like, hi, my name's Carissa. What's your name? What's in your basket? I love Fruit Loops. Like, you know, just like constantly talking to people would never keep my mouth shut. Actually, if you look at photos of me as a baby, toddler, my mouth is always open because I was constantly talking. Um, so I think, you know, a very lively, uh, loud child. Um, and, you know, I was, I was an only kid for four years and then my brother was born. And my brother was basically the opposite where he didn't talk for so long um, that my parents thought he might have a speech impediment. Um, he didn't, he just, he allowed me to do the talking for him for a very long time. And when he didn't speak, he actually kind of created his own language. And so I would be tra translating for him um, to my parents. So it took a while for, for that kind of to sort itself out. But um, yeah, very opinionated, um, really didn't like bullies. I mean, that was one thing that I, <laughs> and it has remained true to this day where I just kind of detest bullies. Um, my mom would go outside and I'd be like, you know, toe to toe with this kid that was like twice my size yelling at him for picking on one other kid in the neighborhood or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think facets of my personality <laughs> really started developing during that time when I was a child, you know, and I, I loved performing. I would tell stories. There's all these like home videos of me just telling either Bible stories or just random things that I made up myself. My stuff, my stuffed animals had a very healthy um, social life <laughs> with each other. Then I had these like very long dramas that were, you know, would go on and on between, you know, garbage bear and uh, my reindeer stuffed animal, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a, I had a really great childhood, to be honest with you. I mean, my parents, we, we grew up in the suburbs and uh, when I was 10 years old, my, my, my sister was born. Um, not sure if she was exactly an oops baby, but, uh, you know, so there's quite a, a bit of distance, but I was, you know, and I have a lot of cousins and I was the oldest of not only of, in my family, but of all my cousins. So I spent a lot of time babysitting. I was, mm. you know, I had to be very responsible <laughs> for the caretaking of a lot of my cousins. So I think that that's kind of, uh, very much influenced kind of this like set, very strong sense of responsibility and work ethic that I have today. Um, also since my mother is, um, she's an immigrant from the Philippines. Um, so I kind of had that cultural background with me and we had a large Filipino family that kind of lived within a, a three mile radius of where I grew up. So I could just like bike to my aunt's house or bike to walk to my grandparents' house. Um, so just a really strong sense of community is where I come from, which I think translates actually over very well to my life in the theater, you know, where it's, it's all very community centered and you have a lot of people with a lot of strong, maybe differing opinions and you're just kind of, you know, doing the thing together. Right. It's funny because I'm hearing like an adult in the making during all of this. Um, yeah. Like you're like it's okay for me. I, I was like a grandpa inside, like a 12 year old body. Like I, I was wearing like this and listening to like the Sinatra and like sitting on the couch and being all grumpy for some reason. And then like, <laughs> my sister, who was just a teenager inside uh, a six year old body, doing what you're doing, talking all the time and <laughs> biggest colors. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. I really don't care. Um, and I, and I like that sense of community for, for you. When did you get, you said you were performing, you had the garbage bear, which I love that show, by the way, <laughs> um, where do you think you got the spark to say, you know what? I really want to do this with my life. 
Yeah. I mean, it was funny because, you know, I started performing, I was singing at our church at the age of three. Um, cause I, apparently I was a good singer and my parents were like, here, you can do this. Um, and then, you know, our, we had like church plays and everything. And I kind of caught the bug when I was like, I think six. Um, I, I was like, oh, a chance for me to be loud and, and big and, you know, tell stories in front of an audience of like people who actually want to hear it. Um, that was, that was really exciting to me when I was 16. Um, so I, I was actually homeschooled throughout, uh, all the way from kindergarten on. And when I was 16, my parents were like, well, we don't have anything to teach you anymore. <laughs> um, why don't you just go to college? So I, you know, I took all the tests, I got into college and my first semester, I was like, okay, I know that I love music and I know that I love theater. So I'm going to take, you know, one of the class, like theater 101, 101 and music 100. And I'm going to see which, which major I want to go with. And I loved my theater class so much more than my music class. So then I decided I was like, okay, this is it. Um, and I never looked back. I mean, you know, music has always been a part of my life, but I really, you know, threw myself very deep into the, into the theater department. I was very active. Um, and it just kind of, just kind of grew from there. Right. I remember when I was in, when I was growing up, my parents would do like Christmas Eve church. And that was when they had like a children's choir and they made my siblings go up and do the singing. Well, I'm six foot four and taller than like everyone. So <laughs> I went to like my freshman year of high school. And I, I must say it looked really embarrassing to see all the kids stand up. You see like this giant tree, like between like a six foot <laughs> It was kind of right from there. I was like, I don't think I want to sing anymore. I think I kind of want to act and I do not want to do this ever again, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, so you went to Boise State, you got this bachelor's. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and what was that time like? Do you think you became a different artist during that time as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I was there from age of 16 to, I think, 21, 22. And those wow. are some of the most formative years in a person's life anyway. Um, I, you know, as you probably guess, I, I come from a fairly, you know, re religious, conservative background. And so being thrown into this very liberal um, theater department, at, you know, after having no idea of like what that life is even like beforehand it was totally culture shock you know um and i i got i got i really appreciated like how my my beliefs got challenged you know things that i thought that i knew were true you know like the whole um like homosexuality is wrong that was something that i grew up with forever and you know in the theater department they, it was like homosexuality is not a big deal so it was and i was like oh it's it, it isn't and it was just so great for me to kind of be exposed to different people, different um, beliefs, different mindsets and um, worldviews. So it really started shaping me as far as like, you know, what, what do I really think about the world? You know, I know what my church has told me, I know what my parents have told me, but what do I, what do I think based on what I know and what I've experienced? Mm -hmm. So I think that that was really key, not just as an artist, but as a person. Yeah. Um, because I think you can't really separate the, the artist from the art in a lot of ways, just because they're so in, intrinsically connected. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot. I was very keen because I'm, you know, a big nerd on being the best in the class. I wanted to be, you know, I want to get pl A pluses all the time. I was super obsessed with like ach achievement. I mean, that's something like, and perfectionism is kind of a big overall theme in my life so um so I just I just worked really really hard to you know learn all this stuff and I, I just felt it took me five years to graduate 
it didn't need to take me that long. And the reason that it took me so long was because I took, I wanted to take more classes because I just wanted to know more stuff. Right. Um, I was like, Irish drama, I know literally nothing about that. I think I'll take that class even though I really don't need it. You know, it was stuff, it was stuff like that. So, um, yeah. I, I owe a lot of my, I think, my drive and um, professionalism in the theater and, like, how to conduct oneself, like, from that department. Yeah, and I also grew up in the, in the suburbs, so I went to Columbia in Chicago as mm. an art school, and I was like, I don't know what this is, because, you know, in high school, everyone's kind of the same thing, everyone wanted to go do finance or something, it was like my running joke of, and then once I went to Columbia, it was like, these people acting out and living their best lives, and I was like, what is, not even what is this, like, like, I am so shocked that, like, they can not even get away with it, but like they can do it and no one's judging them. Cause I mm -hmm. bet you if they did this back in suburbs or um, suburb land, uh, they they would probably be looked down upon. And it's so crazy for me. And I was like, I like this. I like this <laughs> acting out and having fun and just making shit up and just going with, going with it. And it's funny because when my parents would see shows at Columbia, they were very much like wide-eyed, like, what is this, Matt? What, what, what are you playing this pirate in this random scene or something like that? <laughs> this is Columbia. They kind of just want to be different. So I even think up to this point, they're still like, well, that was a thing you went through. Uh, I don't think they ever will let me go back or, let, or even let one of their, my other siblings go back, you know. I, 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 art school, man, was, was something. It just, it just really challenges you. And like, it was inspiring to me to see people be brave, get up on stage, try things, look stupid, and be and not die from that. Because that was one thing that I was really scared of when going to, you know, starting out, you know, especially when I was younger. Because I was like, I don't want to look like a fool in front of these people that I'm trying to impress. Right. You know, that, and that like that fear, it can be very paralyzing. So you know, watching other people go up there and just start improvising some dumb shit, you know, and like. Right. And seeing them, you know, either succeed or fail, it did, but it didn't matter. The, the fact was that you got up there, you did the thing, and you survived was right. very em empowering to me. And I can imagine that has to be scary from you. Like you said, you went from homeschool, so you were by yourself, and now you're in this room with other artists. You know, I started as a radio major, and then I went to acting. And our no. department, our, I know, right? And our radio department was so it was much smaller than the theater department was. So I went from being in the room with like ten people to starting my first acting class with thirty people, who turns out are all trying to like get ahead of you. So it went from like. A nice little party to like the Hunger Games all of a sudden at Columbia, which was very scary, but also very thrilling all at the same time. Absolutely. Right. So after that, so you went, so you got your bachelor's, then you, now this is cool. You went to the University of Hawaii, correct? I did. Yes. So first of all, nice. Second of all, <laughs> what wanted to, well, come on, it's February. What made you want to, uh, you know, go there? So I, so I, so to back up a little bit. So I got married um, to a man at the age of 20, um, a person that I didn't know very well. I think we'd been dating for like a few months and then we decided to just get married because that's just what you do in that community. You're young and you're, you know, you, you get married and you move out. So, um, so that's what I did. And there was about a three year gap in between when I, you know, 
graduated from Boise State and then start like went to grad school. And during that time, my marriage was not going very well. You know, as who could have predicted that? Um, it, it ended on, you know, amicable terms. We don't hate each other or anything like that. But I it was in the, we were in the middle of just having like severe marital problems. I was working at an office job and I was just like, I am so fucking bored because I wasn't really creating much. You know, I was kind of directing a little bit here and there with like community theater in town, but I was just like, oh my God, I have to get out of Idaho. I just need to leave. And so I tried to find a school that was very far away, um, which Hawaii is, and they yeah. they accepted me. So I went. I mean, that's basically how how that story goes. I applied to two different schools, one in the UK, one in Hawaii. I got accepted to both. Hawaii was cheaper. So I was like, great, I'll just go there. So I did. And I should, I hadn't been there before. It's not like, oh, our family went on vacation to Hawaii and I loved it. I fell in love. No, I just showed up. I had no idea what it was going to be like. I left my cell phone back at home. So I couldn't even call anybody. Like I, I got on this plane. I just showed up to my dorm. I got in and I started my education there. And it was, again, another culture shock because I mean, Hawaii is another country. Like it's a foreign country that is currently being occupied by the US, right? The only thing that is the same is that we use the same currency and that, you know, we most of us all speak English um, or some form of it. Um, and so I, I started there actually as a directing MFA. I got in as a directing MFA, but once I got there, they were like, yeah, too many of you came in as directing MFAs. We didn't think all of you were going to show up. So you may have to tag team on some of your theses. Like, I don't, we don't know exactly how it's going to work. And I was like, no, thank you. Um, I'll just switch over. <laughs> so I, I petitioned to switch over to a performance MFA because there was only one person who, who was that track uh, that year. Cause a whole bunch of us came in in 2011. And, um, I, and I felt empowered to do so because my first semester when I was auditioning for shows at the university, I got, I got, I got two lead roles within the course of like a week and a half. So I was like, clearly they think I can, I can actually do the thing. Um, and they accepted me to go over to the performance track. And, um, I was there until 2014 when I graduated. So it was great. I mean, I think that one of the things that I really appreciated about Hawaii was that was all about empowerment. And people saying, yes, you can play this role and it doesn't matter if you're Asian. Um, just because <laughs> Hawaii is the most diverse place I've ever been to. And they very much appeal to the whole like colorblind casting where it's just like, hey, you want to play this role? The director thinks you're good for it. It doesn't matter what color you are um, or what background you're from or whatever, you, you can do it. So I was in a very diverse, uh, the most diverse Oklahoma I've ever seen. Um, I was the lead. Um, the guy who played Judd is a Hawaiian Japanese man. I mean, when would you ever see that production anywhere else? You know, the whole cast was very diverse. So um, yeah, so I just felt like, because in Idaho, like it was just very different where, you know, I was like, I was really working hard in classes, but generally speaking, I was relegated to a lot of ensemble roles and chorus roles and small like walk-ons and um, and predominantly the, the the department was white and the lead roles typically went to the white kids and I was just kind of like me and my Puerto Rican buddy were like in the in the chorus all the time so I didn't really get it I kind of felt like this met the message was you're good enough to do chorus roles you're good enough to do ensemble roles but we don't know if you're able, actually able to do lead roles um, and Hawaii told me that that, it, that was not the case. So I was really grateful that I went there um, and felt like, oh, this is stuff I can I can, actually can do. 
do you think uh, this is again from my time at Columbia? You know, the professors there were very full of themselves. You know, you had the old white professor who's been teaching for thirty-five years, and they always said, like, you know, Matt, you're very good at this, and that's all you can play. Was was it like that for you when they pretty much just told you? stick to the ensemble roles because I really don't see you being anything else. I don't think that they actually ever said that to my face. Um, it wasn't like that. It was just like, I had, I mean, how many productions did I do in undergrad? Like, I mean, I was in a show almost every semester, it seems like. Um, I definitely got in all the musicals. I got in all the operas that we did and I was always in the background. So it's just kind of this, like, whether you like know that that's the message that's being told to you, you feel it. Right. Because if I if you're constantly being like just put there, then you're like, OK, I guess this is all all I'm worth. Right. Um, and, I can, and I can imagine you didn't like that. You didn't see yourself in the background. Correct. You know what? I I wasn't sure because I when I first got there, I was like, I because I, I didn't have like this background in theater per se. Right. So in my head, I was like, absolutely. I could play Juliet. Absolutely. I could do, you know, whatever lead role I wanted to do at the time. At the time, I was like really into musicals. Um, I was like, of course I could be the baker's wife or of course, I could, you know, whatever. Um, but then as it went on, I was like, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I can't do it because no one's giving me the opportunity. And so, and I was never clear on whether it was me as a part, like me as an artist, like, am I just not good enough? Um, is it because I'm, I'm Asian and that's why I'm not good enough? And I know, I mean, those are not, those are not conversations you're having with your teachers you're not going into their office being like are you not casting me because i'm not good or because i'm Asian?" like no no one's having those conversations right um so it was just something that had pervasively gotten into my brain that maybe i wasn't good enough to act um and honestly like I, that's what i really wanted to do but i chose to go more of the directing track because i thought well if i'm not getting cast in shows but i know that i'm a storyteller maybe i should just be a director um, but when I went to Hawaii, they were like, no, you're a leading, you're a leading lady. And I was like, oh, I actually am that. Um, so kind of like owning that about who I am as an artist and who I am as an actor, when I like approach roles, um, was like I said, very, very, uh, empowering. Right. I was going to say, I think didn't you, you had this fear going in and I think that fear kind of stayed with you pretty much through a vast majority of your time at Boise State, am I right? I think so. I mean, like I said, I mean, I was so young, I was scared. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And so like, I was, and I think that what the other thing too was, is that I was holding back a lot just because I didn't want to be too much for anybody. Right. right? So trying to like, okay, keep it together, keep it together. Don't like explode on anybody with like all this personality and like all this vibrancy because you don't want to stand out in a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, I think it definitely held me back a lot. Yeah. Oh God. I remember, like that said, that first acting class, I was still dressing like I was in high school. Like yeah. I was wearing all the high school clothing. And then I was so nervous, not even nervous, intimidated by everyone in my classroom. I'm like, you're good. You're good. You're going to get casted over me just because we're the same height, but you're better than me. Like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I would act and I would turn into a shell the other way. I was, I was so energetic on the outside. And then I had the, the biggest stage fright ever and it wasn't until my teacher was like Matt you're good chill out <laughs> um so now this is also I want to know this is also true you started uh, a, a theater company correct 
was this during or after the um, time in, in Hawaii? Um, so yeah, so I started a theater company in Boise. Um, our original name was the King's Drama Troupe and then it turned into the Broken Illusion Project. Um, and basically what it was, was a, a number of my friends, um, we just decided to get together and, and do plays. It kind of started like kind of born out of our church. Um, right. So I would like direct plays at our church and use the money for like a fundraiser. So we did like a fundraiser for the uh, American Red Cross or the Boise Rescue Mission or whatever. Um, and then it kind of evolved out of the church and we did a partnership with Boise Little Theater to do um, like grittier, more uh, young people centric shows, you know, cause like Boise Little Theater, they, 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 you know, they produce shows like, you know, Pirates of Penzance and things that kind of appeal to a certain demographic. And so our program was to draw in younger people and we literally were, were performing, I think at their storage room that they had cleared out. It was very dark in there. It was very like underground theater gorilla type. Um, and it was fun. And so I did that uh, in between, basically in between uh, undergrad and, and grad school. Very cool. Uh, and did that spark your interest to continue like a bigger theater company or maybe moving this thing out, out of Idaho? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it was a thing where like I was, I was doing that, but it wasn't enough. Like it wasn't enough work and it wasn't, um, I knew that I wasn't growing. I felt like I had hit a plateau and I was like, I know I can get better, but I don't know how to do that on my own. I don't think I can do it on my own. So that's why I decided to, to go to grad school and to further my education. And then was, was it after grad school thing went to Chicago and like, this is what I like pretty much. Yeah, I mean, like when I was, you know, approaching graduation, I had a meeting with a professor and I was like, you know, I don't really know where to go <laughs> after I graduate. You know, it's kind of the, the big three, right? Do you want to go to L.A., New York or Chicago? Where sure wasn't really on my radar at the time. And he gave me some really great advice. He was like, if you want to be a director, go to New York. If you want to be a writer, go to L.A. If you want to be an actor, go to Chicago. He's mm -hmm. like, so it all kind of depends on what you personally want to do. And I was like, well, I want to go be an actor, so I'll go to Chicago. And it was the same thing. I just showed up here. And I was like, well, let's see what happens. And if I hate it, I'll just move somewhere else. Um, and so I've been here since 2015. And I've, I clearly have loved it. Like it's, right. I, I found a very, you know, community based uh, theater environment, which I love and really appreciate. I mean, that was the one thing that I loved in Hawaii was that people were very supportive of each other, sometimes to a fault where we couldn't actually critique any work um, to the point we should, but like, it was very like community centered, you know, it was very collaborative. We would create, you know, I'd be in a big cast creating like some weird big device show with like, you know, 20 other people. And it was, I loved that, you know? Um, so coming here to Chicago, I found something that was not the same, but it was similar enough that I was like, this is, this is it. Like people have each other's back. Like we're, we're helping each other create better, um, more interesting work. And if you have a question, you can ask somebody and they will help you with, you know, and I've talked to people that not to shade like New York and LA, but I just know that those cities are, that community is not the same. It just doesn't have the same vibe. Um, I, I've heard that from people that have either gone to New York, come from New York, gone to LA, whatever. Um, it's just not the same environment. And I just, that's just more important to me than becoming a big star. Um, so I know that Chicago is not really like a star maker. Like I'm not going to become like super famous, but that's not 
ever what my goal was. Right. So it's fine. <laughs> but I think we're just like a very creative bunch as opposed to like New York, LA. Like we're like storefront theater is this big thing that I love doing that we don't really care what the budget is or how many people we have in the audience. We just want to do good shit. Like it's mm -hmm. pretty much like, like you said, I don't really want to be a star. I just want to become a good artist and just not part of my language, just fuck around with art and just see where it goes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think some of the best experiences I've had in Chicago was when I was working with a group of, you know, very talented, opinionated artists, and we were creating art together and figuring it out as a team. Um, I think that it just provides like just a very like fertile ground for imagination, this like willingness to try and fail and try again. Um, yeah, because I mean, like, and I and I've just really discovered that, like, that that's the kind of work that I I really love doing, and I want to continue doing. Right, and that brings me into you as a casting director mm -hmm. at Straw Dog, and you know, we'll get into how you got the job in a minute. But I'm just curious, when you become a casting director, what are the things that you look for in a, an actor? Yeah, I mean. And it, it obviously varies between projects, right? Because there's obviously like this, like the specs of the role, the specs of the production, you know, we're looking for many, everything from like demographics, identity to actual skills, right? So if I'm right. casting for Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins, um, you know, I, can you play an instrument? Can you sing? These are, you know, just kind of like talent questions. Um, but I'm also looking for, you know, professionalism. So that means like answering my emails in a timely manner, um, sending me a headshot when I ask for it within, you know, a couple days. Um, and you know, and it's it's a little bit different now just because we can't be in the room. But we were, when we were in the room, or even if it's a Zoom room, I'm I'm looking for someone who is like willing to try, willing to say yes. Now what, you know, um, it's kind of that yes and quality where, you know, if, so somebody gets, you know, something I've seen before and I've, I've been guilty of this too. So I, I'm so empathetic with this is that, you know, you get, you get the sides, you prep the sides the way you think it needs to happen. Um, or, you know, however you think maybe the casting director like wants to see it. And then you go in and, and you do the sides and then you get a note. And I think the most successful auditions I've seen is when people take the note and make it their own, have an opinion about the piece and then do it, you know, try it. It may not be at all right for what the actual production is going to be, but it's that willingness to try new things I think is really exciting to me. And I think people succeed better when they, when they do that. Right. Um, and I know, and, and no, it's, it's hard sometimes because sometimes you might get a note and then be like, well, I don't, that's not how I know that, you know, this kind of like feeling of I can't do it that way because then it would be wrong. Um, and I think that hinders a lot of people because they don't want to fail. They don't want to look stupid. Like I said, I'm so empathetic towards that. Like I totally, totally understand. Yeah. Um, but I think just that willingness to get up there and try something different, I think is very freeing. Right. Cause I think once you get that, no, like I, like you said, I've been this before where I do it, the thing I, I, the way I think I know it, it's supposed to be. And then the director's like, all right, we'll try this. And it's like, you've given me what, no time. And then I have to just sort of try it and see what happens. For me, that's always been like, well, then I didn't get it then. And that's like the one mindset I have to be so much better in uh, when it comes to like the audition. It's not like, no, you didn't get it. Just try it. And then leave with your head high saying, well, Hey, you did something different that may or may not work. 
I think that's the one thing I've had so many friends of mine lose their confidence halfway through the audition or the monologue or the scene just because it, it got changed and they didn't have the time uh, to prep it, you know. Exactly. And I, and I totally get it because I, I like to over prep things. I overanalyze everything in my life. So I understand that like trying to like try something on the fly and it's like, okay, I'm just leaping off this cliff and seeing what happens. Um, it can be very unsettling. Um, but just know that like at the end of the day, it, I, I feel like the more low stakes you can kind of make it, make the audition, the better you'll perform. Right, because if you're like, this is it, oh my God, my dream role, and if I don't nail this audition, my life is over, like that like high stakes, just it just creates so much stress, not just like for you, but like in your body. And then that stress ends up kind of coming into the room and everyone can feel it. Right. Um, I think actors really need to remember that us on the other side of the table are looking for a solution to our problem. Our problem is that we have a role that needs to be cast. Um, so if you come in with this attitude of like, I am the solution to your problem. Here is how I would approach the role. Here is what I'm bringing to the table. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. I'm just going to go off and do something else or come in for another audition. And that that's it. As opposed to coming in being like, okay, I am trying to figure out exactly what I think you want. And so I'm going to try to be the best thing for you. And like, it's like trying to like read our minds. And I think just don't do that. Like just relax, just relax. And I know, I know it's hard. Like I let, like, Oh, Chrissy, you can say that. Cause like you're on the other side of the table. I'm like, yeah, but I'm on the other side. Like, I'm on the other side with you a lot of the time too. And I, I understand how that goes. Right. Oh, I was going to say, I, I forgot reading the director's mind that I, I, I've been, a, I've been accused of doing that. I probably have been doing that just because I'm thinking, and I think it's also just been with the low energy I've been trying to go with like, all right, I know what they want. Let's just do it and see what happens. And then once I do that, oh, then I feel so guilty. Like, oh, crap, I, screw, I screwed it up somehow. Or that was not what I wanted to do. Or <clears throat> the worst comes to worst, I stumble in, into it. And then I get lost of like, oh, what, am I, what, what was I supposed to be doing now? Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the one thing once this pandemic's over. One, if we ever get back into audition, I don't think so. But you never know. But um, yeah, that's the one thing I want to do better, uh, you know. <clears throat> yeah. And I think like taking care of yourself after the audition is so important. And I don't think people really talk about that as much as they should, in my right. opinion. It's all about, okay, here's what you're going to do before the audition and then during the audition. They don't talk about like what should happen after the audition because I have personally gotten to the mindset where I'm like, I'm beating myself up for hours, days, like, oh, Carissa, you didn't do that right. Or like, oh, you, you missed a moment there. Or, oh, maybe you should have done that way because they didn't laugh. And like, just like this overanalyzing. And it's like, oh my God, like, why are we, why are we torturing ourselves in this way? Um, someone actually gave me some really great advice in which they said after you literally, as soon as you get out of the room, um, I mean, don't do this in front of like the casting people, but like literally take the, your sides fold them up and put them in the recycling so that you've like have this like physical thing of like, okay, I'm closing this chapter. It happened. It's done. I'm putting it literally in the trash and I'm moving on with my life. And then if you get a call back or if you get the role or whatever, then it's like, Oh my God, hooray, surprise. I'm so happy that I got it. 
But if I don't get it, then I'm not stewing about the fact that I didn't get it for days on end. Right. I was going to say, because if you take the script with you, like, again, I've been accused of this. I'm still thinking about it days to come. Oh, I haven't heard anything yet. Well, that means I didn't get it. Well, maybe I did get it. I don't know. Yeah, I like it. Just throw it away. You, you did you did all that you can. There's nothing more you can do. It just all depends on what the director wants. Mm-hmm, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I actually had somebody tell me that they started burning their pages afterwards, like cleansing. And I was like, I mean, if that's how far you want to go, right. man, like go for it. <laughs> well, that's a choice. It's, I, I, that's when you feel like a director. Like, it's not the right choice, but it's a choice. When it it's comes a choice. To- Hey, it works for them, so like I. <laughs> right. Whatever floats your boat, I'm like fine, go with it. Um, so there's there's something you wrote on your website that I think is really cool, and this comes to you as a playwright, but I think this can also be mean for you as an artist. You like to take a critical view of the world from a social, political, and cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that? Do you think that? Where do you think that perspective came from? And how do you think maybe? Did it start with one thing and they may add and then another thing added to it? You know, that's really interesting that you, that you bring that up. So I feel like my personal lens through which I see the world is constantly evolving as I get challenged on things and I develop a, you know, a different worldview. Um, like it's kind of like what I was talking about before when I first started going to undergrad is I was, I believed certain things and I thought certain things. And then I got introduced to, you know, the flip side of what I thought I knew and then realized that I was not, I was not in the right, you know? And, and I think it's something about being converted, if you will. I don't know if that's like a problematic word, but in a sense it is, um, of kind of adopting this more progressive view of the world. Um, that has like really forced me to look at every aspect of my life, of my relationships, of how um, the world functions. Because, you know, when you, when you grow up in a very religious, conservative background, it just kind of, that, that very permeates into every, into people, into how they live their lives. And um, it, it felt to me very restrictive as far as like what people could do with themselves, their bodies, um, how they behaved in the world. Um, and so as I got challenged, I, I just, I grew a lot. And so I, I can't help now, I can't help it, but now I'm looking at everything through that lens of, is this something that is beneficial to society or is it not? Is this something that is beneficial to our like, you know, cultural fabric or is it not? Um, I'm obviously like being Asian, I, Asian American, I should say, uh, that, that experience has taught me a lot about being ignored, being silenced, um, kind of the role of like what, I I mean, I've seen how Asian Americans are cast in shows and a lot of the time it makes me very upset. And so it kind of like, spurns me on to be like, okay, I, do, I don't want that. I don't like that. I don't like how we're being treated. I don't like how we're being portrayed. Um, and so pushing pushing back against that, I think is is really key. And I know that I'm not the only, um, like we're, like Asian Americans, we, we, our experience is not unique. That extends to a lot of other people in, in, in the world. I mean, it's basically, if you're not a cisgender white dude, like, you have probably, or straight dude, I should say too, like you have not been probably represented incorrectly. 
No. Um, the chances of that are, are a lot lower than, you know, someone who is not of that demographic. So, yeah, so everything I, I look at now when I'm watching a movie or if I'm watching a play or if I'm reading a book, like, I cannot help but this but have this lens over my eyes as I'm perceiving what I'm what I'm looking at and and, and um, consuming. I was going to say, like, what are some of the things, like, for someone who doesn't get what you're saying, like, if you see a show or a movie, like, what are some of the stereotypes or things that make you cringe? Um, yeah. What are, what, are some, what are some of the things you see? Yeah, I mean, like, one thing that, I, that I've, I've really been, uh, like, I get frustrated about is this idea that, you know, people of color are, like, sidekicks. That, like, we are just uh, tools for the white protagonist, um so that they can achieve their goals, so that they can achieve their dream in the story, you know? Um, I actually have turned down <laughs> roles where I was basically, I when I read it, I was like, oh, you basically just want me to be the brown sidekick to this white woman. I'm not interested in playing those roles any longer. Um, if that's if that's just what the story is, like, I just, I, I cannot do it. Like, I I feel like that that story has been told before and it gets, and the more that it gets told over and over and over again, the more it perpetuates that stereotype that people of color are supposed to be in the background, that we're supposed to be just help meets to the white people, you know? And I don't, I don't think that that's true. Like, where's the agency in our lives? Where's where's the agency in us like telling our stories and our experiences. Um, And so those are the, those are the stories that I want to amplify and uh, lift up. Right. No, that makes sense. And you went back to saying you felt like you were in the background when you were in college. And that's probably, you probably feel the same, I'm not even going to speak for you, but you probably feel the same way, right? When you, when you read a script or you see a play and you're like, wow, I can even relate to that or I can remember seeing something like that uh, before. Absolutely. And so I think that, you know, because I have that lived experience, I'm a lot more sensitive to it. Right. Versus someone who might not have had, you know, that, that, that same experience in their life. But, you know, and then there's that whole, you know, the Asian American trope where, you know, women like Asian American women are usually silent, mm. you know, where we've been, you know, we get exoticized, we get fetishized. Um, and then, you know, it's just like the sexy, silent Asian woman that some person is like wanting to fuck or, you know, like it's something. And then that's, that's their entire, that's their entire storyline. Um, like, for example, like when I watched The Crown, I think it was season two. Um, I was so excited when I was like halfway through and I was like, oh my God, an Asian girl, finally, oh my God. And then all that happened to her was that she slept with this white guy. And that was like her entire storyline. She got very few lines and I was like, "That is that it? Oh, oh, that's it. It was really, it was really disappointing. And I know that, I mean, obviously that show is very much centered around the British family and everything like that. So I, I, I understand in some way like why it's like that but at the same time I was like this is just another reminder of where the media like where our industry feels like we belong and it's in the background it's in the shadows it's it's quiet like we're supposed to be just quiet over in the corner right so then like what stories then that what stories interest you if you had to be put in charge of a show and you had to come up with this come up with it like what kind of interests you or stuff like that yeah So I, so I believe that I think this issue of like seeing, like having diversity on stage in, in shows, um, so it's like TV movies. I think that it needs to be tackled in from two fronts. Right. So I think what's really helpful is when you have a show that is very recognizable, 
um, like Hamlet or, you know, like a Shakespeare play, Chekhov, um, and putting people of color on those cast lists, you know, having them um, there and present in the room to tell that story, um, I think is really key so that people can see them and be like, oh, right, this actor is really good. And they're able, like they can play the role just like any, like any other actor can because we're all just human. Um, so I think there's that. And then, the, but the other side of it, which I'm a lot more interested in, I mean, I will be fair about this, is that I want to see new stories. And I want to see stories that are written and developed and created by people whose voices have, um, you know, usually been very marginalized in society. So, um, like one thing that, you know, I, my work as a playwright is I, uh, my work is primarily looking at, um, like interracial relationships, uh, Asian American families. I mean, a lot of like what I'm interested in right personally writing about are those things. Um, and like this, like, like I said, it's very community based cause it's kind of like where I always, I always go back to that. Um, but yeah, like, I think that that's like, that's what we, we need to be producing is we need to be producing these diverse shows that are created by diverse people. Right. And I wonder, you know, if, again, me as an, I, I say this a lot on this show because of this past year, I feel like I became a better artist and a better actor. And what mm -hmm. I sort of mean by that is, you know, we went through this whole change of the world pandemic, social justice, presidency, riots. And it took me a minute to say, you know what, I need to step back and sort of listen to what's going on before I can say, I want to act in this or I want to do this. I know who I am, which is a cis white male. That's great. But this is my stories. You can't do my story right now. We need, I, it's time for someone else. So I, so that's how I think I become better at not acting more, but of artistry. Yeah. But I think that, I mean, that, that tells me that you've become, you know, more aware of like where like you are and where we are as a, as a society, as an, uh, you know, even as an industry, right. you know, like what stories are we now interested in, uh, you know, because I think there's been, you know, especially with the, you know, we see you white theater, white American theater um, thing that came out earlier this year. I, I think that that's just really inspiring and kind right. of taking a really hard look at what what are the practices that we've been doing before in the past um, that no longer serve us because it doesn't serve everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, so we need to push back on what has be, you know, what was the norm before because we're we're leaving a lot of talent in the dust in right. that way. You know, and I don't, I, and that's something that, you know, when I think about it, sometimes like it makes me very upset because I'm like, well, what people in the past, you know, forever ago could have contributed very heavily to our, you know, the canon of literature that we have for, for theater, but we, they didn't have the opportunity to have their plays produced. So we don't know anything about what they, what they did or what they could have done. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just don't want that to be the case for you know our generation for the generation that's coming up um you know in the theater and i just i'm just really really passionate about that right yeah i was listening to this I was listening to a sports podcast of all things but they were talking about how um certain companies or certain teams or certain brands you know change themselves because of current events mm. and i think it could be really interesting even for the theater company or just theater in general do you think this change or this um, transformation that theater companies went through can sustain or do you see some theater companies being like well that's over we can go back to the way that things were 
You know, that's a really interesting question. And it's actually something that I've been worried about, you right. know, that like once, like once the, the initial outcry maybe like dies down a little bit, will theater companies, you know, go just revert back to the way they were because that's what they were before. And they are very, that culture is very entrenched in, in themselves as a company. But, and I think that it, I think we're just going to have to wait and see, you know, cause I think that some companies have been irreversibly changed. Um, they're not going to go back to the way they were, but it all depends on the people that make up that company. And, you know, if their voices are being heard, if their voices are being, um, taken seriously and they're like, you know, if the company decides as, as a team to be like, this is the direction we're going in. Um, but yeah, it, it does worry me that some, that it could happen where some companies are just like, well, that's over. So right. no one's like threatening to, you know, bust down our door or set our building on fire. You know what I mean? Like yeah, no, yeah. metaphorically, but you know, like it's, I, I want, I wonder if some people will get lazy and get complacent and then just revert back. I mean, I've also wondered too, if, if companies are actually doing what they say that they're doing anyway, you know, like, are you just sitting around talking about diversity and being like, wouldn't it be nice if we had a more diverse board or more people of color on staff and then they don't do anything about it. Like that tells me they're not even doing the work. They're right. just sitting around playing lip service to this trendy thing that's happening right now. Um, so I think it just, it just depends. It depends on the people that are, that are in power. Right. And I'm not going to name companies uh, on this because I need Probably wise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, I can just see them being like, well, we did, we, we fit in for a while. It's time to go back. We have a season that was canceled. Let's do it again. And because we have our patrons and they're already paid for, so we have to keep doing it, which from a business standpoint, maybe I get, but also like, if you want to have new artists and new voices, like, then this doesn't work. That can't work anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Going back into college, I remember I did a speak, I did a voice class, an oral expression class. And we had to do this mock presentation of like, you're selling something. And I said, I'm going to sell this theater company. And like, how, what are we going to do? And I, the first thing I said was, oh crap, how do, how do you do a theater company? <laughs> because I was like, I, I, don't, I never ran one before. So I just literally just listed, I just Googled plays of like, oh, all right, what plays do I want to do? And they're all boring. I'm going to be really honest. I spent comments. I was like, I think I liked it at some point, but like, that's four hours of just... <laughs> People talk in the bar, that bores me. And so I, I said this on the show, there's a great movie that's also a play called Same Time Next Year. You ever heard of it? I don't think so. Who's the playwright? Oh, I don't know. I know it was a movie first. Oh, um, oh okay. Uh, I know it was an Alan Alda and Alan Burstyn movie about these two people who are married and real, who are married, but one week in a year, they come back and, and have their little affair. And so like, it can, so it follows them every year or maybe every decade how they went through the 70s and maybe the 80s maybe one's more successful maybe one is has ran away i think that stuff is interesting i like like i like relationships relationships mm. really interest me right now um so that's the kind of theater i tend to see but what about you what what theater do you want to see more on stage i know you said like what characters what stories but like yeah what... i mean i I want to see companies take risks. You know, I think it's just so fascinating when, you know, a company has like taken something that I wouldn't, I would be like, wow, that is really, really gutsy. And, 
you know, they're, they, they do it. Um, I'm trying to, th- it's been, it's been so long since I've seen anything. Right. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I remember like one of the things that I saw in the wild, like since I moved here to Chicago, I mean, when I saw at the table at broken nose theater, I was blown away by that show. Um, you want to talk about relationships. I mean, that show is just like, like all these relationships that are, did you see it? I'm sorry. I don't I know. Did if not you... see it. I know. Okay. Um, but it was, it was fabulous. Like it was so fascinating and I was so hooked into every single like relationship thread and, um, how these people from all these different backgrounds were relating to each other and fighting with each other and kind of navigating these murky waters. Like I was just so, I was so enthralled by that. I mean, that, that cast was also very diverse and I was like, Oh my God, yes, this is the kind of multicultural um, show that I, I want to see. Like I, I want to see this kind this kind of work. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a huge like spectacle person. Like I don't usually go to a show. Like, I'm so sorry for any designers that are listening to this, but um, I'm not like, Oh my God, look at that set. I can't believe it. Or look at that lighting or I just, that's not something that like appeals to me as much. Like I, I can, I can, I can see it. I can recognize it for what it is. But if you tell me you have a giant slide on stage, I'm that, I don't know that that alone will entice me to come see your show. (laughs) I might get jealous because I think I want that, but like, I don't think it's going to do anything for me. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I love that idea of like relationships. I mean, that's definitely something that when I, especially when I'm reading plays, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm interested in how people are relating to each other because I think that that is just really, really human. I, and I, I love human stories. Right. Cause there's this relatability as someone like, you know, I'm alone in my life. That's but like, that was weird, but like I, I like <laughs> <laughs> I like seeing like those first dates or that or maybe a marriage 15, 10 years down the line. How has that changed? You know, my parents mm-hmm. have been married for twenty years. You know, I can sort of pinpoint changes in their life that I find interesting that I know I can't talk to them about because be like, well, that's not your business, Matthew. But like that stuff, I try to find in like characters and scripts. Sure. 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 And even like you know for a bigger audience, like Miss Black for president, I think was like a gutsy show. I think this, I mean, not, I know design wise that was, but like the stage and the character and how this is like a story that people never even heard of before, which was interesting and I loved it. That show was incredible. I remember like either screaming or like clutching my my friend who was sitting next to me just because I'm a very reactive audience member. So I, tro- I usually try to sit in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so that I'm not like distracting anybody, but I, cause I just can't help it. Cause I have these like visceral reactions to things. Um, but that show, I was just like all over the place. I, it was so engaging and that, yes, like the design wise, like that show was just phenomenal. I mean, right. every time Molly Brennan came out, I was just like, Oh my God, what's happening next? Like, <laughs> I'm usually like, I was front row for that show and my jaw was on the floor cause I couldn't believe what I was seeing in the best way possible. Uh, because I've never seen like a show where I'm that close to someone. That was incredible. Were you on the floor? Like with the, Oh, you were the, Oh my God. Those, whoever sat there, what an experience I'm sure y'all had. I like, was, <laughs> the time of my life. 
I was that close to, like, Terrell McCraney and, like, when how he was turning into Joan Jet Black and I was, like, on the edge of my seats of, like, oh, my God, he, this, this is going to happen, you know? It was, yeah, that was, that was quite an experience. I, yeah. And speaking of Steppenwolf, like, uh, one of the shows, I mean, and everyone talks about this show, so I, I know I'm not alone in this, but when I saw Passover, I was right. very, very much affected by, by Passover. Um, like I said, I get very invested in, in what I watch and, um, at the end, at the very end of the show, um, you know, when Ryan Hallahan was like talking to the audience as, uh, the, I can't remember the name of the character, but it's Mr. Or Master. But at the very end, I, I have never felt so angry. I felt so angry and I wanted to like leap out of my seat and start screaming at the act, at the character, not the actor, but the, but the character. Right. And I... Like, and I was like, could I do it? And it was this weird thing in my mind where I was like, could I do this? But I would ruin the show. But do you, are you trying to get this, like this response from me? Like, I don't, like it was, um, yeah, I, I, I left that show feeling incredibly troubled, um, which I think was basically the point. Um, but yeah, but I've always, I've always wondered what would, ha- what would have happened if I had just gone with my instinct of being like, just standing up being like, fuck you and fuck this. <laughs> like, ah. That's what I wanted to do. It's what I, you know. They would probably have a very early intermission is probably what I would say. It was the end of the show. So that would have been like, well, there. go home. Like it just, um, it, yeah, but I think it's, it, but if you can create a show in which your audience member has that, audience members have like that kind of like, reass- ver- sorry, I can't speak. Yeah. visceral reaction um i think that you've i think you've done your job because i think that theater is supposed like it's not the movies you know where you know we sit in a dark room and we you know let the the film like wash over us like it's not it's not that theater is supposed to be engaging it is supposed to be community building we're not supposed to just sit back in our seats and just like let it you know like i said like wash over us like a tidal right. wave um but like i should be like up in my seat like wanting to like engaged with what's happening on the on the stage and like that's the kind of work that i i want to see and that's the kind of work that i want to create right well speaking of creating we have some time we're gonna do a game oh a game yes a game this game is called (laughs) i'm excited this game is called time for two two minutes on the clock no right no wrong answers oh god i want to hear your opinion you're gonna be great i do this at parties all the time okay all right i'm ready all right here we here we go. Three, two, one, go. What part of the human face is your favorite? Eyes. Dogs or cats? Dogs. You play any instruments? Um, I play the piano and the drums. Jimmy John's or Subway? I hate both of those places. I'm sorry. <laughs> is a DJ just someone who's good at iTunes? No. Do you have a MySpace page? Uh, I did. It's probably still around somewhere. I can't access it anymore. Morning or night person? Uh, morning person. Are you good at cooking? Yes. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> What's your typical bedtime? Uh, 10 o'clock, 10.30. Nice. Fruits or veggies? Fruits. Do you have an alcoholic drink of choice? I really like brandy old fashions. Nice. Timon or Pumba? Timon. What Disney film best describes your life? Probably Frozen. <laughs> can, you be bo- <laughs> yeah, can, you, can you be box? No. 
Are you afraid of Virginia Wolf? No. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? One and a crunch. <laughs> Eminem the rapper or Eminem the candy? Um, the candy. Besides this podcast, what podcast do you recommend? Um, I really like The Moth. Oh, good one. Have you ever kicked down a door? Uh, I kicked down a doggy door once. Does that count? <laughs> okay. uh, do you know how to tie a bow tie? No. Do you wash your hands after going to the bathroom every time? Yes. Right. Bunny the Elf, what's your favorite color? Blue. Jack or Jill? Jack. Uh, fork, spoon, or knife? Sporks. If you moved to Sesame Street, who would you want as your neighbor? Oscar the Grouch. And that's how we play. Yay! <laughs> you gotta bring, I tell you, I'm going to make a card game out of this and bring it. <laughs> I think I found my next million dollar plan. Perfect. Uh, right? So before we go, Chris, my last question to you is, uh, are your parents proud of you? I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> Krista, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This is for our first time talking face to face. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was so nice to, to meet you and, and have this chat. That's right. Carissa wrote a play, How Do We Navigate Space? An original divine hybrid of film and theater. The work explores the experiences of Chicagoans navigating through our current drastically changed world. The piece is inspired uh, by, sur by surveys submitted to Chicago residents sharing their experiences during 2020. Because, you know, 2020 was so much fun, right, Griffin? 2020 was, uh, I mean, I mean, it, it was the worst. <laughs> this, this, I show... know, I know you want me to like be optimistic, but 2020 was the worst. <laughs> there was, there's nothing about it that I liked. Uh, this show is combining movement, music, visual arts, and the voice of Chicagoans. The film will express a non-linear story of a diverse and complex city and the search for connection. The show is playing uh, at Straw Dog Theater, March 15th through April 18th. It's a pay what you can with a suggested amount of $15. For more information, go to strawdog.org. But there's more to Carissa. One of the mean, she started a theater company. She did start a theater company. Tell us more about that. This is called, the theater company is called uh, Bramble Theater Company. They are an ensemble of multicultural artists who tell new and reimagined stories that embrace the philosophy. With, all, with their work, they seek to ignite empathy, defy the status quo, and provide nourishment for the soul. They empower each other to take risks and create brave work, but without using techniques that cause harm or trauma. They choose a humble bramble bush because of its beautiful duality. The thorn challenges, the fruit nurtures, made of many tangled vines it remains a single united organism i was like wow yeah i just want to point out i did not come up with that <laughs> i am not I, that, don't I worry not, i know that was yeah. far too eloquent for you to have come i up was with, gonna Matt. say like i'm saying this out in my head i'm like i hope people know i'm not that smart it's it's all carissa and, and oh you're company. you're you're very smart just but not like that you know they yeah. are they are doing a new a uh, a new show, the Ministry of Mundane Mysteries. Bring your case to the ministry, and our team of highly expert experts will solve it to you. No case is too mundane, at least as far as we know, is what they say. The dates are 
Hey, what you can't break is March 1st through the 6th, and the opening is March 8th. Tickets will be on sale soon. For more information, go to MondayMysteriesChicago.com or BrambleTheater.org. Ooh, ooh, we love a mystery. Ooh, we, we do love a mystery. Yeah, I love some Cumberbatch. <laughs> sure. Uh, what it's do we? Sherlock. It's a Sherlock reference. I know. I've seen Sherlock. I am I your Watson? Then is that what's happening? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's sure. Sure. So Griffin, I don't know about you, but um, it's getting very cold out where I am right now. You know, it it wasn't so cold where I was. And then it got quite cold out of nowhere for a few days. And then it stopped being cold again. So I don't know what's happening here. But yeah, either yeah. way, it's winter. Yeah. Shit so happens. We, we shit happens. We need a break. We need a break. So we're gonna we're gonna take next week off, but don't worry. We'll be back the following week. I believe that'll be March 14th. Yep. And we'll be back with a, a brand new, very special crossover episode. Ooh, that's all we can say, right? Yeah, well, well we won't, it is with, I mean, it, we can say that it is a crossover with another podcast. Uh, yep. We will not say which one for now. I guess you can say it's a mystery, right? Yep. Anyway, you can doesn't like give us. anything away. Nope. None. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Parents Proud Podcast. Email us at parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Ah, love those emails. They they yeah. keep they keep me going during this during the most depressing year of uh human existence. Well, I don't know. There there's probably been worse years. I was but, say, I mean, like it sucks right now, but compared to 2020. I just meant like 2020 up till now. Oh, I don't know. Hey, but I then I re- but then I remember that there was like a black plague in the Middle Ages, so I'm like, yeah, you know what? That was probably worse. Yeah, probably. I don't know, but yeah, emails and then like and share this show on all your favorite podcast platforms: iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Red Circle, you name it. We're probably up on there. Let's help keep this show growing into something bigger and something better than it, it already is. Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, I, he's Matthew Schufreider. Uh, I am Griffin McCorkle, the newly appointed uh, uh, conductor, uh, train conductor of Are Your Parents Proud of You? I conduct trains. You know how you like, you, you, you sort of like stand at the front of the railroad track with a, with a stick and you, and you wave your hands. That's what I do. I conduct, can I conduct you say, the trains. Can you, can you say all aboard like Tom Hanks and the Polar Express? uh i have never seen the polar express what <laughs> only the memes this is uh this is a, gonna be a running thing now of me saying i haven't seen that movie well i am but uh, i haven't seen march of the penguins so we're i haven't either <laughs> we're good to all go. aboard all aboard folks we'll see you in two weeks thanks for listening bye-bye bye everybody bye